Hello and welcome to The Gateway. I'm in Munich this week. I don't know if you can hear some chickens sort of going off in the background, but nevertheless, we continue as always with The Gateway. So this week we have Mohammed Abdu, who is the Global Racial Justice Postdoctoral Fellow at Cornell University, and he is also the author of the recent Islam and Anarchism, Relationships and Resonances, which was published by Pluto Press in June 2022. I begin by asking Mohammed what brought him to the book and if he could introduce us to the subject. First of all, Assalamu alaikum, Nicholas. It's an honor to be uh, on your show, Bawab, the Gateway. I'm very humbled and honored uh, to obviously meet you, you know, even virtually and uh, as well as ostensibly for our audience that are listening. Growing up and being a tenacious reader, I mean, I, I was reading Fanon, I was reading uh, a lot of Arabic literature, feminist literature, Nawal uh, Sadawi, for instance, uh, Muslim feminist uh, literature as well uh, at a young age. Um, uh, I recall my father also had a huge uh, uh, poster, a signed poster or, or picture of Jamal Abdel Nasser that was framed. One would, you know, obviously frequent to the mosque on Friday prayers, uh, having studied Islamic studies uh, uh, with a, a mentor of sorts. His name was Sheikh Jilani, he was over 100 and something years old, originally from Iran. The confluence of all these dimensions of going to the to Friday prayers, Palestine, Kashmir, um, really provoked within me a dilemma, uh, a Du Boisian sort of, um, if you will, double consciousness. Um, the element of pan-Arabism, pan-Africanism, if you will, that animated the 60s and 70s, but also equally Islam uh, and pan-Islamist movements, if you will, uh, Fazlur Rahman, Maududi, and Sheikh Sabah, and so on and so forth. So it really provoked in me insofar as the racial as well as the religious dilemma, uh, how to best organize our society's liberation, uh, what are the faults of the 60s and 70s, what are the learned lessons. So I was always skeptical of the state. I always had an issue with capitalism. I do believe that they're inseparable, arguably historically, and though they may share short-term animosities or long-term strategic interests are very much the same. So you can't fight racial capitalism without fighting the state because the state is also, as Foucault notes, as a lot of BIPOC scholars have noted, is also very much a racial project uh, within itself, particularly if we're talking about um, the settler colonial context of the US and Canada, right? That are built on manifest destiny, doctrines of discovery, um, so for me, 1492 became, again, at a very nascent age, and later on in uh, my academic, if you will, uh, writing, scholarly and activist writing, uh, a very significant signifier. Uh, why? Because 1492 gestures towards Muslim and Jewish eviction, persecution, conversion at the hand of the sword in Spain and Andalusia uh, by Ferdinand and Isabel, a continuation of the crusade. Um and the casting of Muslims and Jews, people of color who are predominantly Muslim, as savages, as heathens, as non-humans, that was then transplanted and projected onto indigenous people within the Americas. So the conquistador Colombian invasion, if you will, um, that began within the Caribbean um, and the setting up of empire. Now, uh, 
of course, indigenous people were cast as savages, as backwards, as heathens equally. Uh, so there is a direct line there, in addition to the fact that a third and fifth of the transatlantic slaves were, Mus- were black Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula and the west coast of Africa. And a lot of, again, uh, Muslim feminist scholars have certainly pointed that out. So uh, we begin to see, again, an intersection between various different struggles. I don't believe that it's possible to understand the dilemmas of uh, racism um, without understanding religion. And here I'm not just referring to religion as an anthropological sort of category as uh, Euro-America had defined it at the turn of the century either. Uh, but the closest approximation to the word deen in Islam is probably religion. But Islam also distinguishes between deen and iman faith and spirituality or And of course, we need to distinguish between institutionalized hierarchical religions and decentralized religions within it. Uh, at once. So the fact that Islam does not have a central authority, does not have a central church or priesthood or any of that stuff, does not have a central hierarchy. It's a one-to-one relationship, and that's part of the frustration of the your America with Muslims and Islam in general, right? And of course, we see, whether it's in the context of Egypt or any other predominantly Muslim nation, quarrels between religious institutions and state institutions over very much the meaning of Islam, because they would like to decide as to who is the moral arbiter uh, of the true Islam. Uh, in the context of Egypt, the ingoing battles between Sisi and Al-Azhari University c- continues a legacy that was going on since Mubarak and even extends back to uh, Nasser, for that matter. And Sadat obviously dealt with that very differently vis-a-vis the concept of, uh, or the, the notion of and the opening, uh, and the allowance of political factions and political parties that weren't allowed during the Nasserite era uh, but again, Sadat this, did this for his own ulterior motivations. Uh, but we see that mimicked example of, um, as a consequence of either, uh, if you will, the attempt to establish during the 60s and 70s um, socialist projects, if they could be referred to as that, or anti-capitalist projects uh, within the Swana region. We had Ru, we had uh, uh Tito, we had, you know, the non-aligned movements and so on and so forth. We had attempts between Egypt and Syria and the unity there. Uh, This idea of smaller Africa that Nasser had, let me combine Egypt, Sudan, and Libya. We have the land, labor, and capital between these three nations. Let's open up the borders. But nothing materialized, simply because they were trying to use, in Audrey Lord's words, the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Um, so I, it is through these figurations, I guess, that I became very skeptical of the state um, and very much was weaned on, I think, as a lot of Muslims have been weaned on, on the notion of the ummah, non-territorial concept that is not bound with a particular geography that includes Muslims and non-Muslims, that is decentralized, uh, connected to land-based practices in which Muslims and non-Muslims are bound by spiritual, ethical, political commitments that they share with one another. Uh, and I base this based on the notion of the Medina Charter that the Prophet والسلام, had established uh, very much early in the onset of Islam. Um, and the spirit that it held insofar as Muslims and non-Muslims uh, because of also the concept of mu'minin or believers in the Quran. So I'll stop there because perhaps I'm you know uh, diverting a little bit from the question. But that's sort of what led me upon an anarchistic trajectory, the understanding or the perception that Islam is inherently anarchistic. So in that way, as much as I appreciate European anarchism as it emerged at the turn of the century, um, I do argue on a central premise of the book is the fact that Islam already holds anarchistic principles within it. Um, and we can talk about, you know, some of those concepts, uh, macro and micro political concepts within themselves. So.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to sort of pin it has a lot of baggage anarchism, doesn't it? Because people see it as kind of just like a, a lawlessness or whatever. Um, but it's really communitarian living without an authoritarian structure, right? Like a state, for example. Um, and there are different types of anarchism, just there's different types of socialism or Islam. Um, so yeah, just to sort of pin it down a little bit, your reading of your understanding of anarchism really comes from the reading of uh, Islamic texts, I guess. The reading of Islamic texts, the political theological text, uh, in particular the Quran, because ultimately, and this is part of the methodological um, approach to the book. Sure, there's a multiplicity of Islams, and one cannot assume that it's a homogeneous, amorphous category, right? But at the same time, regardless of the differences between these different Islams, because of the way that religion interacts with culture and a metamorphosis between both, um, ultimately, all Muslims, whether you're a nation of Islam, whether you're a Shiite, you're an Ismaili, you're a Sunni, you're a Sufi, you are held by the barometer of the Quran. That's ultimately the text that all Muslims defer to. So that becomes the gauge by which I evaluate, and I'm able to draw inspiration from the various different Islamic formations across history, 1,440 years, while at the same time enables me to critique all these different Islamic formations, over 73 different interpretations of Islam, if you will. What I feel has always been missing is the trunk of the tree insofar as Islam. Muslim has lost sight of the social justice commitments that Islam subscribes to. And so they end up in these culture wars, insofar as gender, insofar as queerness, without being critical to the antecedent um, structures that lay foundations to principles such as feminism, such as uh, queerness. Because I argue ostensibly that Islam is inherently feminist if we understand that feminism is a challenge to patriarchy, which, again, anybody who's read about the emergence of Islam, Marshall Hodgson's work is, is quite incredible in that regard, and as well as a lot of other historians, Muslim and non-Muslim, Talal Asad, and I can name quite a few. But ultimately, um, Islam emerges within a heavily patriarchal society where uh, Arabs had gotten used to femicide, so they would bury their women daughter, or sorry, their, their children uh, who were women or girls. Uh, out of a sense of shame, um, uh, out of a fetishization of masculinity, and so on and so forth. Um, So if we understand feminism that way, then Islam certainly is feminist because of the challenge that that provided. And the egalitarian set of relationships insofar as uh, uh, women's relationships to property, to ownership, to responsibilities, to rights, and the entire discourse that that begins to usher within itself. Uh, The role insofar as relating the oral tradition, uh, we have the muhadithat within Islam, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, Islam very much appreciated that they constituted half of the ummah, um, and they uh, were revered in dignity and owed respect that way, and their voices were very much fundamental to the evolution of Islam and its interpretation and application across time. Now, anarchism is often mistranslated, too, within Arabic discourses, but also within, you know, Euro-American media and propaganda, and even within uh, knowledge uh, and the information that is uh, transmitted in, in this age of manufactured consent, if you will, to use Chomsky's term. Uh, anarchism is often mistranslated as chaos, as anarchy. Um, 
Uh, in Arabic, it's referred to as Fawdawiya. The actual translation, as Hibra Rauf Aizat had pointed, is La Sultawiya, which means without authority. And because, again, the only authority that Muslims ought to subscribe to vis-a-vis -vis the concept of Tawheed, which is the most fundamental core pillar of Islam, that you pledge allegiance when you become a Muslim or identify as a Muslim, through this concept, which is you pledge and you say that La ilaha illallah, there's only one God, and Muhammad, uh, a Rasulullah, and Muhammad is a prophet amongst a list of other prophets. Well, that means that you pledge no allegiance to no nation, to no state, to no tribe, to no blood, to no family, to none of these lineages that traditionally, uh, if you will, again, animated uh, the Swana region, but more explicitly uh, Arabian society at the time. So with all these factors taken into consideration, uh, then we begin to see ostensibly that, yeah, given this mass translation of anarchism uh, that has taken place with new redefined meanings, uh, both for it and Islam, one discovers, again, uh, one is able to redream dangerously and imaginatively different horizons beyond the nation state vis-a-vis Islamic principles. The problem is most people, when they write about Islam, scholars or activists, they're taking an outside view in. They want to look at gender not from within Islam or queerness not from within Islam but from gender studies inwards right as opposed to operating from within the discourse itself so what does Islam say and this was a major question for me and which I discussed in the book and address what is Islam what is Islam's model of governance because sovereignty in Islam besides being with Allah lies with the concept of the ummah Right. And Arabs have mistranslated the concept of dawla because we did not have a word to correspond to the state. Um, so we took a word from the Quran that means the exact meaning, exact opposite, sorry, of the state. Um, and we took it and transformed its meaning to actually mean dawla um, or to mean the nation state. So uh, uh, even Arabs and Muslims have failed to recognize uh, both uh, the re-understanding of Islam, uh, as well as other discourses beyond Islam. And this is why we consistently see the reactionary responses that Muslims, even lefties, either want sort of the kind of quote-unquote democracy that exists in the West, a liberal democracy, settler colonial democracy uh, that exists in the West, within, that includes leftists uh, on some level, even if it's some kind of socialist project, if you will, they still hold on to the fact that to them, uh, at least from a Marxist-Leninist perspective, the state is an instrument of liberation, which I disagree with. Uh, on the other hand, you have the neoconservative responses that these that colonization has evoked, and we see that in terms of Al-Qaeda, we see it in terms of ISIS. We all understood what ISIS was doing, which is it was breaking this arbitrary colonial border between Iraq and Syria, and we could all clap for that. The problem with ISIS is that its Ummah project was located in a totalitarian um, conceptualization of ethical and political uh, everything, right? Um, now, imagine if those ethics and politics were geared towards a very different trajectory, right? Uh, what would that facilitate? Insofar as transcending the false binaries, insofar as am I supposed to align myself as an Arab, North African, and Muslim with um, a Euro-American crusading Wahhabi uh, alliance on the one hand, or the false choice of, again, Iran, China, and Russia on the other hand. To me, these represent false choices. So a way to transcend these choices is by, again, developing that alternative model that very much coincides with anarchistic principles. The problem with anarchist communities as they emerged uh, and because of anarchism's emergence as European discourse, is that they are predominantly animated by whiteness. So a lot of white anarchists have left 
religion behind. They tend to be come from Christian households, exposed to dogmatic, hierarchical conceptualizations of religion. All of a sudden, they um, experience this political awakening um, and embrace the no God, no masters slogan without historically contextualizing, again, those words as they were being applied by Emma Goldman, Bakunin, Kropotkin, and so on and so forth in relationship to the present now and the context now. Uh, I mean, Emma, uh, Emma Goldman, Bakunin, Kropotkin were all uh, um, Jewish, right? So th th there is an element of that dimension of religion, obviously, in the anti-religious uh, um reaction that anarchists are often uh, involved in without really also understanding anything about Islam or studying Islam or studying Judaism, for that matter, or other spiritual traditions, as much as, again, they also fetishize types of indigenous spiritualities without interrogating, for instance, that any civilization or any community or any spirituality is capable of totalitarian practices such as the Maya or the Aztec. For instance, so again, this romanticization of one particular spirituality over another uh, becomes problematic, but anarchists understand quite well insofar as the inseparability of indigenous struggles from spirituality. But when it comes to Islam in particular, there is a great deal of Islamophobia, as much as they may stand against Islamophobia, for instance, the anti-war protests in Iraq and Afghanistan, as much as a lot of anarchists have never been to a mosque, don't want to read the Quran, don't want to actually immerse themselves within Muslim communities to understand, and vice versa, of course. A lot of Muslims have not invested themselves within queer anarchist communities or horizontalist type of organizing. They've bought into, particularly within the diaspora, the hyphenated American belonging. Right, the Black American, the the um, the Asian American, the Native American, the Muslim American, and so on and so forth, because they believe in the promise of America as an ongoing democratic project. But the irony is, the only American that doesn't have to identify as a hyphenated American identity is the white American, because they're considered to be the Native, and they just call themselves the American. So yeah, there's a great deal. Again, we're living in an Orwellian world. You know, first they steal the words, and they steal the meanings, and and that's part of the dilemma. And it's this misconceptualization is going on globally, right, within the context of Egypt, within the context of Swana in general, and the foreclosure of certain possibilities and impossibilities. So. Yeah, because really central to the book is uh, decolonization, right? And one of the issues you take with sort of mainstream left-wing politics, if you think of AOC or Bernie Sanders, and even sort of flagship policies they have, like the Green New Deal, is the criticism that they don't really, A, that they stay within the nation-state structure, and B, that they don't really approach indigenous rights within the US or um, in terms of imperialism, neo-imperialism of the US as well. At best. Uh, and, you know, the book begins with that dilemma, that contradiction, in my humble opinion, that far exceeds a paradox. And it points to the scene in which Ilhan Omar is being flanked by uh, the great Angela Davis um, uh, after she was accused of anti-Semitism um, and uh, given remarks that she had made uh, uh, over Twitter and online. And she started off by saying, well, this is a country founded on genocide and slavery and so on and so forth. It's actually afterlife to slavery projects. It's actually an ongoing genocide, ethnic cleansing and so on and so forth. This project hasn't ended. But then she continues on. But look at me. I'm an example of the American dream. Right. This is the irony about representational politics, uh, uh, you know, that ultimately, again, the state functions. We have to understand what the function of the state is. It is a mode of governance. It is a mode of not just discipline, but rather control, racial, gendered 
weird hierarchical authoritarian control, uh, as much as, of course, capitalism shares a lot of these dimensions. It's also hierarchical. It's also appropriative. It's also disciplinarian. But the state is the one that acts as the eatable father. You stop at red lights, you go at green lights. Um, you can't engage in direct action or protest without getting a permit. And so on and so forth. So the irony of holding a women's march uh, as you're being surrounded by trigger-happy cops, uh, the patriarchy all around on stolen land uh, is inescapable that way. So which is it then? Is it an American dream or is it, as Malcolm pointed, an American nightmare? And unfortunately, a great deal because of what Trump coming into or becoming president has led to led obviously to a great deal of polarization, which I actually appreciate a great deal because it forces people to make hard choices. The problem, though, with that moment is that also created false choices. It created the squad, right? A leftist, progressive, nonetheless, um, group of individuals that supposedly subscribe to leftist principles, but ultimately not only hardly have any real grassroots uh, experience, and here I'm talking about, you know, frontline work over decades, over a period of time, knowledge, and so on and so forth, but no even analysis of the fact that they are complicit participants within a settler colonial structure. 1492 is not an event. It actually set up a structure, one that is dynamic, one that is rather malleable, because... And it's an intelligent structure because it would like to preserve its own phantasmal origins as an ongoing, again, project that is constantly evolving and aspiring towards a democracy um, that is always sought to be attained, right? This is how Obama justifies his failures, his shaming of uh, black fathers uh, as absentees, and so on and so forth. His drone warfare, his bombing of the Middle East in his last year of office of up to 60,000 bombs, you know, a bomb every 22nd, and so on and so forth. So uh, it is... it it. it the false choice is has made it easier to gravitate towards Bernie, a soft, uh, uh, you know, uh, imperialist Zionist who grew up on a kibbutz. Um, he could hardly address Black Lives Matter protests when they would interrupt um, uh, his speaking gigs uh, or, uh, for that matter, Palestine. Right. Uh, that I mean, he's against BDS, for God's sake. You know, I mean, what could be more proof as to the limitation and the blunting of radicality? If I'm in solidarity with a people because I feel that they're injustice, then by all means necessary. Right. But then there are a lot of, unfortunately, anti-Zionist uh, Jewish voices that as much as we appreciate them, a lot of it also are very much against BDS. Right. So um, uh, that precisely becomes the uh, the irony of that false choice. And a lot of people gravitated. If the millions of dollars, and I was saying this to a friend the other day, that Bernie had collected, and who did he collect it from for his campaign? And obviously was screwed over by his Democratic Party. So you would think that, again, that would just search or something. Uh, that would lead to a transcendence of these false orders. But the millions of dollars that he had um garnered. Where did they come from? Middle and working class and poor people. Um, in the hope and promise of what it is that he offered on the table. Well, if those millions were directed towards abolitionist and decolonialist projects, think of where we would be at uh, now. I'm, I'm thinking here of red and black power movements insofar as the different political trajectory that they were on. They were not interested in representational politics. They, in so many ways, were anti-statist, even the Panthers with their Marxist Leninist trajectory. There are problematics that the Panthers fell into, as any movement falls into. And we need to learn from those lessons. But nonetheless, they never vied, and neither did Malcolm, neither did Martin, into to be a part of the hallways and the corridors of power. 
They were constantly in line horizontally with their people to allow that room for a calling out. They were concerned with building alternatives. The Panthers built the free breakfast programs. They were prepared to protect their neighborhoods. They didn't have any demands, per se, from the state. They weren't waiting for liberation. They were actively seeking it out vis-a-vis, again, land-based projects. Where are we now in relationship to that? Um, so this becomes the dilemma. We are finite in resources, uh, inabilities. We are disorganized, and the left loves to tear each other apart. We don't even have an ethics of disagreement and something that I point to. The Marxists hate the anarchists. The anarchists hate the Marxists, and so on and so forth. So we're very ideologically pinned, despite the fact that I don't believe that ideologies exist. Why? Because an ideology presupposes that an idea can resolve all the problems that exist in the world. No idea or singular idea can do that. Ideas are always in relational uh, existence with one another. And the more that they're able to fuse together various different injustices, oppressions, racial, gender, queer, class, age, disability, and so on, the more that one more has a holistic narrative from which to operate towards a liberatory trajectory that frees everyone and not just a subset of people. Uh, versus the state logic, because the state operates vis-a-vis -vis politics of rights. What I'm proposing is a shift towards a politics of responsibility, towards one another. That means without outside mediation of the state or anybody for that matter. Of course, that's a lot harder because people have to override their insecurities, their prejudices, their microfascisms in relationship to one another. We have to invest. We have to get to know one another because we've all internalized misconceptions of one another. That's really hard. And so it makes it easier for the Tahrir moment not to last so much, for it to last 18 days, and then for people to throw all the responsibilities that they had originally taken on themselves. For instance, um, you know, women manning checkpoints, the breaking down of gender relations in Tahrir, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, people bringing food, people uh, from all walks and areas and districts of Egypt, people uh, setting up uh, local councils within their neighborhoods, um, uh, that people, like I said, engaging in the ethic of sharing, of, of solidarity. But the problem with Tahrir was, and this is why it was lost and forsaken, people did not talk about the differences that brought them supposedly together because they were all enamored by a nationalistic rhetoric that camouflaged the differences that existed between them. Again, the state reconciles the lowest common denominator of difference in order to have a political party or a leader be elected. So it's not interested in reconciling the different trajectories, politically or ethically or otherwise. So you had the Muslim Brotherhood out in Tahrir, you had the lefty anarchist, uh, you had the queers, you had the Marxist revolutionary socialists, you had the Naqabi woman, you had the chain-smoking secular woman, but none of these people actually talked about what is tomorrow going to be like? Because revolutions involve practical questions. They're not a joke. People die. That's the reality of them. They're violent. Uh, certainly, the Tahrir was not Twitter or Facebook-led. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the government had cut off all those dimensions. And so we went knocking door to door. And that's what I mean by face to face. Now, it's obviously much more difficult to sustain that because we have to decide what are we going to do with a nuclear power plant? What are we going to do with the army? Are we gonna, even going to have police? After the 18 days, People were calling for the return of the army because of what the myth of the army had established of the protector of this, the fatherly protector of this motherly Egyptian nation. So again, we see a gendered project there that is heteropatriarchal and so on and so forth. But 
people decided, no, let us throw that responsibility back onto the state to mitigate our daily lives. Meanwhile, you created a sovereign, autonomous, horizontalist formation for 18 days that inspired the world. You just decided that you weren't going to continue with that spirit of Tahrir. So you didn't take it back to the household, to the factories, to to build, to actually build those alternatives. You decided, and revolutionaries decided to engage in a constant direct confrontation uh, with uh, armed forces uh, uh, that were fully equipped uh, to decimate any potential for revolutionary change, because all you're engaging in is direct action and you're not creating alternatives. How are you supposed to convince the hundred, the hundred million Egyptian people that an alternative vision exists. And not only for Egyptians, but because a lot of people were looking within the Swana region to Egypt, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about Libya, but those obviously got usurped because nobody learned from the examples of Tunis and Egypt. And look at where Tunis now is and look at where Egypt now is. So um, the only people that I knew that were actually focused on alternatives were queer feminists, uh, uh, Sudanese, Nubian Egyptians, and Muslims. They were the only ones that actually accepted alternatives. Sure, we have alternatives like Meda Masr that I very much appreciate, but besides that, I, you know, there were no knowledge production alternatives. Meda Masr is, of course, it's about knowledge production, but it's also a media outlet. So it's about information. And as much as, of course, they have scholarships and they do book reviews and so on and so forth, but ultimately it's not a knowledge hub. Um, it's not an alternative hub. What my participants, my communities established, on the other hand, were actual alternatives. Some of those alternatives no longer exist. That's besides the point. That's a different discussion. But it was the inception of alternatives that becomes quite critical. Oh, um, the issue of identity politics in the US, especially as it pertains to Muslims, um, and how anarcho-Islam offers a kind of alternative, especially in light of sort of mainstream film portrayals of of Muslims post 9-11 especially, right? Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm remembering Jack Shaheen's documentary on real bad Arabs, which is uh, obviously touches on, you know, Hollywood's representation and the transformation of that from the heydays of depicting uh, Orientalist visions of Islam and Muslims, Valentino, for instance, to our construction as terrorists, right? Again, that's the Orientalist fundamentalist trope. Right. Um, and so far as your question, look, as I note in the book, uh, identity politics do have tactical value. The problem is, is that they're strategically limited. What do I mean by that? The state functions vis-a-vis -vis representational politics, vis-a-vis -vis identity politics. And because the settler state is a white supremacist state and liberalism at its heart, at its core, is white supremacist. Uh, we need to understand that. The idea, insofar as when one looks at the Enlightenment scholars, Hobbes, Rousseau, Kant, uh, there is a dimension there of an understanding that um, we could not succeed in defeating Muslims vis-a-vis -vis the Crusades. So there are two ways in terms of a direct confrontation. There are two ways that we can overcome them, override them. Number one, to racialize Islam, an African Islam, an Arab Islam, a Black Islam, an Asian Islam, whatever Islam, and to pit these Islams against one another. The other project was a sectarian one, or to harp on the sectarian tendency. So to pit a Shiite Islam versus an Ismaili Islam versus uh, a Sunni Islam, and so on and so forth against one another. Now, when we look at um, the structure of identity politics, so let's take something simple, BIPOC as an acronym. 
Well, the fact that black people experience anti-blackness, yes, absolutely. Indigenous people, anti-indigenous politics every day, absolutely. Women, the same thing. Sexism every single day, absolutely. All these oppressions are very much real. The problem becomes when one gets too attached to the label. Um, one needs to embrace the label to let go of it. And what I mean by that is BIPOC has its limitations. Why? Because, okay, where is the Afro-Indigenous supposed to slot themselves? In the Black category or in the Indigenous category? Are there not Black people of color? What the acronyms uh, skew is the fact that there are tensions between us as people of color collectively because of the way that we've been complicit and been pitted vis-a-vis divide and conquer strategies against one another. And that is what white supremacy facilitated. Let me give an example. So indigenous people were conscripted or, or, or uh, uh, actually engaged in slavery and black people were conscripted towards indigenous extermination, right? So here we see the confluence of indigenous and black futurities because we also have Afro-Indigenous, quote-unquote, identities, subjectivities, Black Cherokees, Black Mi'kmaq that emerges out of that. And this is why Indigenous and Black liberations are entwined. Another example is anti-Blackness that exists within Arab society now, both against Black Arabs and non-Black Arabs. Now, of course, Blackness is complicated. We can turn to the question of Israel, for instance, and the way that uh, Black Zionists become complicit in both uh, the oppression of black and non-black Palestinians, right? So as much as anti-blackness exists within, yeah, absolutely, it's one of communities, that's something that's not undeniable. At the same time, what constitutes blackness? Um, because, you know, what that also provokes is a great deal of anti-Arab and black orientalism as its counterpart. So identity politics do have their limitations that way. This is, you know, how queer studies how queerness became an identity as opposed to an imminent critique of all identity politics. And now everybody's subscribing to LGBTIQ, et cetera, including Two-Spirit, although Two-Spirit is not even an identity. Yeah. So, um, and this is why queer indigenous, queer black studies, queer people of color critiques have also emerged. So identity politics are constructed vis-a-vis -vis a white lens, a white supremacist lens, a white liberal lens in the way that whiteness views us as segregated, compartmentalized categories to be hierarchized on the census. I have to identify as white because Egyptians or Coptic Egyptians fought for the right to be racialized as white at the turn of the century. Now, obviously, Arabs and Muslims are trying to fight back against that to change our categorization racially because they want to be recognized as an oppressed people. Of course, we're oppressed, but unfortunately, a lot of Arabs and Muslims, particularly within the diaspora, have also bought into their own self-victimization. So they're not attentive to indigenous struggles. They may be attentive to anti-Black struggles, but they're not attentive to indigenous struggles or the complicity within the settler colonial project here. I shudder to think that when Arabs and Muslims go out into the streets and they yell, free, free Palestine, in the context of the US and Canada, well, your Zionist on stolen land. What are you doing insofar as indigenous struggles over here? What are, um, you know, like as we were talking earlier, those that have fled Egypt because of the repression conditions and have faced Egyptian jails and have dual citizens or managed to flee towards the US and Canada, are they involved in abolitionist projects over here? The answer is, and quite bluntly from the majority that I know that I see, absolutely not. So that their failure to interrogate and to integrate our interconnected fires, our interconnected struggles in relationship to one another. This is both an intellectual, but also a practical project without an idea, without a narrative, without a story to tell, we're always going to be leaving somebody behind. But the more that we're able to encapsulate various different forms of oppression intersectionally, 
in our analysis vis-a-vis a decolonial framework, that is, Eve Tuck astutely identified as well as a lot of indigenous scholarships, because there's also pan-Africanist scholarships that talks about decolonization, right? From the 60s and 70s, but holds on to the state. Indigenous struggles have continued the decolonial project, picking up from Cesar, from Feminon, from so many, uh, but have certainly put out their own agenda because, yeah, the nation state is not a part of the way that either BIPOC in pre-modernity or in modernity should be organizing uh, our lives. It, it, we have our own governance structures. We need to feel pride and we need to stop constantly hearkening to models, to ideas that are more or less European or European American, if you will. Um, you know, again, I said I appreciate anarchism, but I'm not going to hitch onto the bandwagon of European classical anarchism. And I would suggest Marxists should do the same. And again, that's part of the failure of the imagination and the desire to apply a blueprint um, to revolutions, if you will. And people not conceiving of themselves as part of the revolutionary project. Uh, you know, and and that's that's basically the problem. You know, Muslims read every single. Uh, I know this verse quite well in the Quran. God does not change a people until they change themselves. So combat your inner microfascisms. That's a responsibility. And you will create a different environment, a different landscape for uh, liberation, collective liberation that speaks to everybody. So, and hence the limits of identity politics that way. <laughs>